I am uh, personally very passionate about restoration. Looking and seeing what looks worthless, worn out, destroyed, hopeless, restored to have a purpose, restored to have value, to have usefulness once again. I admire the work of those who restore things. I admire those who take a piece of furniture that looks like it's just ready for the garbage on, you know, large dump day on the side of the curb. Someone who can take that and turn something beautiful into it once again. Or someone who can go into a home that has been modified through the years and restore it back to what it was on the day that it was built, in the era that it was built. I, I admire people who can do that. I admire people who can take a bucket of old motorcycle parts and pieces and, and work with them and, and create a beautiful, restored piece of art uh, that, that you can, can be useful once again. Or that old car that's found on a barn or out in a yard or a field somewhere that looks just like a bucket of rust that has no future and after a lot of hard work and, and skill and investment, turn it into something beautifully restored. I admire those who not only have the skills to make the restoration happen, because I admire that. I look and say, I wish I could do that. But what I admire most is the vision that they have that they can look at something and see what it can be instead of what it is. They look at it and they see what it can be instead of what it is. That's the true beauty of restoration, looking past what currently is to see what can be. Now, I'm even more passionate about spiritual restoration, seeing God take those of us who have failed, those of us who are broken and flawed, those of us who feel worthless, those of us who have let others down, those of us who've been let down by others, who feel hopeless, discarded, and forgotten, and taking us and making something valuable of us, giving us purpose again, making us useful again, providing a second chance for us, a new beginning through relationship with Him. You see, the beauty of God's grace is not being fixated on what is. Anyone can be fixated on what is, but in seeing what can be. The central message of Easter is God's restoration of His relationship with His creation through the cross and resurrection of His Son, Jesus. God is the ultimate restoration specialist. That's who He is. And so if you look at all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they provide an account of the death of Jesus. And all four of them provide a consistent account. They don't contradict each other. They are consistent accounts. Yet if you look closely, each of them will give details that the other one will not include because those details are important to the particular audience that they're writing to. And so Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience. And because of this, he takes great effort to connect this account about the death of Jesus back to the Old Testament prophecies 
that these Jews, these new Jewish Christians, could relate to so they can understand exactly what it was that happened when Jesus died. And so in light of this, he records the death of Jesus with details that the others don't include. Details that I would say may make us feel somewhat uncomfortable, somewhat confused. Like, what does that mean? Why is that in there? Sometimes making us want to just kind of skip over those parts because we don't really understand them. We don't know what to do with them. And so we don't even think that maybe they even belong in the story. So let's just kind of not focus on that. Let's look at the other stuff. Now, for those of you who know me, you know that I find that stuff incredibly fascinating. The stuff that doesn't appear to belong, it's got to be there for a reason. And so that's what I want to focus on with you today. Matthew tells us that when Jesus died, some really strange stuff happened. Some graves were open, graves of holy people. Their graves were opened and they were raised from the dead. And after Jesus' resurrection, they actually went into the city of Jerusalem and gave testimony to certain people in the city. And as I read that at face value, I ask, what in the world does this have to do with Jesus' death? Why would Matthew include this when the others don't? What's the significance of it? And so to try and under- to answer and to understand this account without considering the Old Testament counterpart that joins with this would leave us confused and missing the true value of what's happening here. And so my goal this morning is to help us understand the significance of what Matthew is trying to show us. And I believe what Matthew is trying to show us is simply this. The death of Jesus on the cross provides the means of relationship with God to be restored. The death of Jesus on the cross provides the means for relationship with God to be restored. And so let's look at this passage this morning. It says, when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. And at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. So let's try to see what this means and how it relates to us this morning. I'm going to start by talking to you briefly about Ezekiel and the dry bones. Now, as I've already mentioned, trying to understand Matthew's account of Jesus' death without the Old Testament counterpart, well, it's going to be confusing and we're going to miss the value of what's happening here. And so Ezekiel 37 is the Old Testament counterpart to what Matthew is recording here in his gospel. And there's two things I want us to see. The first first is death. Ezekiel is an Old Testament prophet, and he's a prophet during the time when Israel was in exile in in Babylon. The Jews have been taken captive, been taken out of their homeland by this foreign invaders, and they've left Jerusalem behind, they've left Israel behind, and they're now in exile and in bondage in Babylon. Ezekiel is living among some of these Jewish exiles in the settlement there. Now, Israel is exiled, and God has allowed this to happen because they've continued to rebel, and they've been disobedient to God. And so most of 
Ezekiel's prophecy, if you read the whole book, is actually God's judgment on Israel because of all the sins that they committed. They're reaping the consequences of their sin. And in the book of Ezekiel, the exile reality for these everyday Jews who find themselves there is they compare it to a state of death. They say, we're dead. We are dead. We're living in death. To the Jews, exile was equivalent to death. And so in the middle of this one day, God said to Ezekiel, you know, I I want you to be led by my spirit out to the middle of the valley because I want to show you something there that I want you to share with Israel. And so Ezekiel is led by the spirit. He's in the middle of the valley and it's a valley that all of a sudden is filled with all of these dry, dead bones. And obviously because they're dry, they've been dead for a long time. And the bones represent Israel's spiritual death. They represent the broken covenant with God. Israel's without hope. They're cut off from relationship with God. Death is their reality. And spiritual darkness covers their lives. But then there's life. The exile is about more than just punishment for their sins. God intends the exile to be a means to lead them to repentance and humility so that somewhere down the road in the future, his people can be restored to him again in relationship. And their restoration is going to be more than simply going home to their homeland. It's going to be primarily focused on their relationship with God. And so during the vision of the dry bones, God asked Ezekiel, he says, Ezekiel, could these bones live again? Could these dried up bones that are not even connected, could they live again? And Ezekiel's answer appears somewhat political, but, but very honest. He said, God, you know what? Only you know if these bones could live. Only you know. And God said, Ezekiel, prophesy to these bones. And he says, as you do, I will make my spirit, the Holy Spirit, enter into these bones and they will come to life. Tendons will grow. Muscles will grow. Skin will cover the muscles. And then my Holy Spirit is going to breathe life into them and they are going to come to life. Sounds a lot like the Genesis passage when God took the clay and the dust of the earth and created mankind and then his Holy Spirit breathed into them and they came to life. Because all throughout Scripture, the Holy Spirit is the life giver. And with that, in the middle of this vision that Ezekiel's having, there's a great noise, there's a rattling sound, and the bones begin to come together and the tendons form and the muscles form and the skin forms, but there's no life there yet. There's no life until all of a sudden the Holy Spirit, the breath and wind of the Spirit comes and brings life. And they stood up, it says, as an army. And God said, Ezekiel, I want you to understand what I'm trying to show you here. These bones are my people. They're spiritually dead because of their rebellion and their sin. Their hope is all gone. There's no life. There's no future. God said, I want to tell you something. I'm going to open their graves. I'm going to end this exile that they associate as being dead. And I'm going to put my spirit in them. And I'm going to restore my relationship with my people. And so Ezekiel's vision painted the imagery of death to describe the spiritual condition of God's people, but included a promise 
that someday life would be restored to God's people, relationship with God would be restored, and spiritual death would turn to spiritual life. So that's our backdrop story. Then we see Jesus and the walking dead. Now, as mentioned, Matthew is the only writer who records the raising of these certain holy or righteous people from the dead when Jesus died, and then they went in and appeared before others after Jesus was resurrected. Now, the reason that Matthew includes this is that Matthew doesn't want just to record that Jesus died, but he wants to provide meaning for Jesus' death. Specifically, he wants to show how the death of Jesus is the means, the only means, for God's people to ever be restored to relationship with God. And so once again, we see these two themes of death and life elevated in this account. We see death. Matthew tells us that from noon until 3 o'clock in the afternoon, Darkness covered the land. It's dark. The sun refuses to shine. Now, I want us to see in this Easter story that the darkness didn't come at the moment that Jesus died. He didn't bow his head and die, and suddenly there's darkness. No, it tells us there's darkness from noon till three, and then at three, Jesus died. The darkness lifted when Jesus died. The death of Jesus brought light to the darkness because the power of spiritual and physical death was broken the moment Jesus died. And God's people could now experience the possibility of deliverance and restoration. God's restoration came through the death of Jesus. And because restoration can only take place when what caused the darkness, what caused the death, what caused the separation is dealt with. And what caused it was sin. And the moment that Jesus died, that sin was broken. Only Jesus' death on the cross can make this forgiveness and this new relationship possible. Only Jesus' sacrifice can end the alienation of God and his creation. And so by taking the sin of all creation, of all time, upon himself on that cross and dying on our behalf, can sin be broken. Now what I want us to see is that Mark and Luke both record the moment of Jesus' death with the same words. They say, he breathed his last. In other words, he died. The end of his life. He breathed his last. But Matthew describes the moment of Jesus' death in a very unique manner with very different words. Now, you may look and say, well, in my Bible it says this. Well, the Bible originally in the New Testament was written in Greek. It's been translated into English, so it probably looks a lot like what the others are saying. But if you look at the other, if you look at the original context of when Matthew wrote it in the Greek, this is exactly what he says. He let go the Spirit. He let go the Spirit. He let go the Holy Spirit. 
When Matthew uses this word spirit in the way that he uses it at Jesus' death is the same way he used it throughout his gospel when he referenced the work of the spirit in the life of Jesus. When he says the spirit came upon Mary and she conceived Jesus, same language. When he says Jesus is standing in the river at his baptism and the heavens open and God speaks and the Holy Spirit descends and anoints him in the form of a dove, same language. When it says Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted, same language as it is at this very moment that the work of dying for all sin and mankind takes place. Jesus is now dead. But the same Holy Spirit that conceived him, the same Holy Spirit that anointed him, the same Holy Spirit that led him is now released by him at the very moment that the work of dying for the sins of all mankind is done. Jesus' death in Matthew's gospel signifies the release of the Spirit to restore God's creation based on the work that Jesus just accomplished on the cross. It is the Holy Spirit that makes that work effective in our lives. And the moment the work was done, the Spirit is released to do the work. Life. Letting go of the Spirit signifies the moment when the new possibility of relationship with God begins. So what's the first thing that happens? Jesus cries out. He releases the Spirit. What's the first thing that happens? Well, the first event after Jesus releases the Spirit is the tearing of the curtain or veil of the temple. This big curtain, this heavy woven curtain, tears supernaturally from the top to the bottom. And it makes sense that this is the first thing to happen when Jesus' work on the cross is accomplished. Because the curtain was a divider. It separated the holy place of God's presence in the temple from the people who would go there to worship and seek God's forgiveness. Only the priests could go beyond the curtain. Only they could go beyond the veil. God's presence was divided from his people in the temple. The temple itself symbolized the presence of God among his people. And the veil represented the barrier between God's presence and the people. And so the tearing of this veil signified, first of all, that this temple function is over. The function of sacrifice of animals is done. The priestly role of going in to stand between the people and God is finished. It is over. It is no longer needed because of the work that Jesus has done. The Lamb of God has been slain. The superior sacrifice, the once and for all sacrifice has been made. The temple is no longer needed. The blood of animals is no longer effective. The role of the priest is no longer necessary. The blood of Jesus has now covered the sins of all mankind for all time. No Further sacrifice is needed. It is over. It is finished. It is finished. The old covenant temple order had ended, and the new covenant that Jesus talked about with his disciples at the Last Supper, this new covenant in my blood, has now been established. Now, we often look at this event 
and say, we now have access to the presence of God directly because of Jesus' sacrifice. And that is true. That is true. There's no longer a barrier. We can come to Jesus directly because of his work on the cross. We can have relationship with God. We don't have to go through someone else to have relationship with God. We can come directly. But that being said, I don't think that that's what Matthew is trying to show us here. There are other scriptures that teach us that, but I don't believe that's what Matthew is talking about here. He wants us to see that at the very moment of Jesus' death, the very moment that the penalty of all sin was paid in full, the very moment when all that was required for relationship with God to be restored, with God's creation is now complete, the Holy Spirit is forcibly breaking out to go and be with the community that God desires to restore and to enact this great work that Jesus has accomplished on the cross among God's people, bringing them forgiveness and hope. As the Holy Spirit breaks out, as he goes in amongst the community, the earth begins to shake. The rocks begin to break apart, and some of the tombs are now open, and these holy ones are raised. The bones are coming to life as the Holy Spirit brings breath to, and, and life to them. Now, we're not told who they were, other than that they were obviously some holy, devout people in Israel's past. We don't know how long they lived after. We don't know any other details about them. But what we do know is that Matthew is writing this account against the backdrop of Ezekiel's prophecy, and the raising of these holy ones is symbolic that there's been a fulfillment now of Ezekiel's prophecy. Jesus, just as the Holy Spirit promised to bring life to God's people who were exiled during the time of Ezekiel's prophecy, now the same Holy Spirit is fulfilling this prophecy by bringing restoration and spiritual life back to God's people through the death and work of Jesus. The moment of hope has arrived. Restoration of relationship with God is now possible. And the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, is working in tandem in relationship with the work of Jesus on the cross to restore God's creation back into relationship with Him. The death of Jesus is a life-giving event. And so Jewish Christians reading Matthew's account of the death of Jesus all those years later would easily make the connection between the promise of God made in Ezekiel's Old Testament prophecy that someday God would restore relationship and now the fulfillment of that promise through the death of Jesus as he brings life to these dry bones. So thank you for sitting through that lecture. For some of you, that may not excite you as much as me. When I research this stuff, I sit at my desk literally in tears as I read it. I just find it so beautiful. Maybe you don't get that, but anyway. There are two things I want us to take for ourselves as we conclude this message this morning. The first is darkness. Many of us in this place this morning live our lives with the shadow of darkness hovering over us. Many of us in this place this morning are living with regrets. You know, we can't agree with Frank Sinatra's song, Regrets, I've had a few, but then again, too few to mention. I was at a funeral once where they played that. I thought, oh, dear Jesus, help us all. 
most of us are living with a very long list of regrets. Because the truth for many of us is this. We've failed. We've made poor choices. Sometimes we call them mistakes, but they're really poor choices. Sometimes we've messed up our priorities and we're not putting the right things in the right place. Sometimes we've broken trust or sinned or let somebody down or we've demonstrated poor, poor judgment in a situation. And the result is that there's this darkness, this hopelessness, this cloud that seems to follow us around everywhere we go because we can't seem to get out of the shadow of our mistakes, our failures, and our poor choices. More than anything, many of us wish that we could go back and undo some of the things we've done, fix our regrets. Many of us wish we could go back and be a better husband or be a better wife, a better father or a better mother, a better grandparent, a better son or a better daughter, a better brother, a better sister, a better follower of Christ, a better friend to somebody, a better money manager, a better co-worker. But the truth is, we can't go back. We can't undo the things we've done. We can't do the things that we neglected to do. It is what it is, despite our regret. Other of us are living our lives with the darkness of disappointment hanging over us. Painful, unexpected circumstances that have cast this dark shadow over our lives. That life turned out very different than what we hoped it would be what we wanted it to be, what we dreamed it would be. This is not what we dreamed, hoped for, or longed for. We know firsthand the reality of the death of our dreams, of our hopes and our ambitions. It seems like every day a dark cloud follows us around, reminding us of our failures, our poor choices, and our misfortunes. We're like the dry bones, lifeless, hopeless, desperately needing to be restored. But then there's hope. Because the Easter message is a reminder that when all seems lost, and when all seems broken and hopeless and pointless, there is hope. Because of the power of the death of Jesus destroys the darkness that consumes our lives. And as we've seen in our scripture today, sometimes it takes a while. It was a long time from Israel's prophetic moment of ultimate restoration to God and the death of Jesus on the cross. Sometimes it takes a while. Sometimes it feels like it's never going to happen. Sometimes it takes a lot longer than we had hoped. Sometimes God is working in the darkness to help us gain a better perspective, to see our contribution, to help us experience remorse, or to learn to trust Him through the dark times, or to rediscover that He is actually indeed worth holding on to. And then sometimes it happens but it happens different than we thought it would. And then somehow, 
becomes more beautiful than we could have ever imagined. I'm glad sometimes God brings conclusion and answers to things different than the way I would have, because they would have been much less beautiful had I been in control. But the truth of the matter is, is that God's specialty is restoration. God's specialty is taking the painful moments of our lives and bringing good out of those moments. God's specialty is taking what the enemy intends for evil and using it for good. And so the same Holy Spirit that hovered over the bones in Ezekiel is hovering over the hopelessness of our lives. And He's breathing life back into our hopelessness. And the same Holy Spirit that was released at Jesus' death is still at work and still dwells in our lives and helps us to experience the life-changing power of the death of Jesus in our lives every day, forgiving our sins, forgiving our failures, forgiving our poor choices, giving us a second chance, a new life, a future. And when you look at the landscape of your life today, perhaps you feel like Ezekiel when God says to you, can these bones live? You say, I I don't know, only you know. What seems obvious is no, but maybe, just maybe, you can do something. You see, Jesus' death gives us life. And as He gives us life, His Spirit works in our lives to restore us. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back this morning. The details that Matthew included in his account of the death of Jesus are not random details. They're not unrelated events. These details frame what God is doing through the death of Jesus on the cross. He's breaking the darkness. He's pouring out His Spirit. He's restoring broken humanity. He's restoring you and me back to God. The death of Jesus on the cross provides the means and the opportunity for relationship with God to be restored. That's the message of Easter. That's the work of the cross. That's the reason Jesus laid down His life, is to restore us back to God. And as Jesus paid the price, the Spirit now works in our lives, bringing hope and truth and a future out of our hopelessness.